This is a tale of two Teds. Our first fictional Ted lived and worked in Birmingham, Alabama in 2005. Ted was a plumber and had worked hard all his life. He had gotten married to his high school sweetheart at 20, and they bought a house. Ted was comfortably middle class, yet the costs of his family of four didn't leave him a lot of extra cash most months to be able to save or invest. Most of his wealth was tied up in his house, a nice four-bedroom colonial in a desirable suburb with good schools for his kids. Ted was also a widower. He had had a good marriage, but sadly, his wife had passed unexpectedly some years before our tale begins. So Ted was a single father of his three daughters, whom he loved dearly. Money was tight, but he could manage, and Ted was a good father. Life was pretty good for Ted and his kids. Ted also had diabetes. As this was before the Affordable Care Act, it meant he had a pre-existing condition and he couldn't get health insurance unless he paid an exorbitant price for it. Ted simply couldn't afford those kinds of premiums and have enough to raise his family. Therefore, he was uninsured. Unfortunately, Ted hadn't managed his blood sugar well enough, and one day, at the age of 48, he was rushed to the hospital with a stroke. Fortunately, Ted received good medical care and the doctors were able to save his life. But he spent a month in rehab before he was finally released. And even when he was released, Ted was unable to control the right side of his body well due to the stroke. This meant that Ted could no longer be a plumber and had to go on disability. Disability didn't pay all the bills for a family of four, but Ted did the best he could, cut back on the extra expenses, and figured that he could make it for a few years. By then, his oldest girl would be in college and his house would be paid off. Ted figured he would sell it and with careful management, he would use the money to supplement his social security, help his kids through college, and survive until he was 65. At that point, his daughters would all be through college and his social security would kick in. Ted was shocked when he got the bill for his hospitalization and rehab, however. It was $400,000. He received several calls from the hospital's billing office but he kept telling them that he couldn't afford to pay them, and they eventually stopped calling. Life went on, and Ted adjusted to his new life. His girls were incredibly supportive, and they remained the happy family they had always been. Then, about nine months later, the hospital batched Ted's bill with a bunch of other uncollectible debt they had and sold the rights to collect on these bills to a collection agency. Ted began to get calls from the agency. They were more aggressive than the hospital, but Ted kept telling them he couldn't pay. Since he didn't have a job and they couldn't garnish disability, their calls eventually stopped, and Ted's life went on as it had been. Then, about another eight months later, the first collection agency grouped Ted's hospital bill with a bunch of their uncollectible bills and sold the rights to collect on them to a second collection agency. This agency was much more aggressive than the last one. Their calls didn't stop coming, and they did their homework. They found that Ted had a house with substantial equity in it. They sued Ted, and he was forced to file for bankruptcy. His bankruptcy lawyer explained to Ted that in Alabama, the law only protected $15,000 of the equity in his house. So Ted lost his home. He ended up living in poverty with his three daughters remaining at home. His daughters never made it to college as he couldn't help them, and his oldest daughter decided to get a job to help her dad, who was going to the food bank at the end of every month 
in order to feed his children before his next disability check came in. Our second Ted lived a parallel life, except he lived in Calgary, Canada. His facts were exactly the same as the first Ted. Same diabetes, similar house, widower, three kids, and same stroke. But this Ted, even though he had diabetes too, was automatically covered by the Canadian healthcare system. So this Ted didn't lose his house. His kids all went to college, and he was able to use the equity he had built up in his home over his entire working career to supplement his disability. Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, Episode 37, Searching for a Greater Society. I've never understood the opposition to Obama's Affordable Care Act. Opponents love to say they're opposed to socialized medicine. What they failed to think about, however, is that we've long had socialized medicine. When I was very young, I can remember occasionally seeing people with cleft lips. This is a severe condition, and, when combined, as it often is with a cleft palate, can be disabling as it can prevent someone with a condition from being able to speak normally. You never see anyone with a cleft palate today in America. This was true even long before the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. At least since 1986, hospitals have been obligated to accept most patients regardless of their ability to pay. Patients wishing elective treatment don't generally fall into this category. But this is socialized medicine. Even before the passage of the ACA, anyone in the U.S. who truly needed medical care could get it. And if they couldn't pay for it, it would be provided for them anyway. This is still the case for those who chose not to be covered under the ACA or just can't afford it. So how have we as a country chosen to pay for this socialized medicine? Our system is unique in the industrialized world. In 1986, Congress passed the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which requires hospitals licensed in the U.S. to treat anyone coming into their emergency room, regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay. Here's what's odd about it. It's an unfunded mandate. That is, hospitals aren't reimbursed for the cost of anyone treated in an emergency room who can't pay. So who pays for the health care of Americans who can't afford health care for themselves? Well, it's not the hospital, and it's not the government. So the answer should be obvious. People who can't afford health care must go to the emergency room. Let's say someone without health insurance or ability to pay catches the flu and spikes a dangerously high fever. They can't go to a private doctor's office, as there are no doctors where they live that will accept patients with no insurance or ability to pay. This person's only choice? To go to the emergency room. The average cost of this doctor's visit would be between four dollars to $500. The average cost of the same visit to an emergency room would probably be over $1,800, at least four times the cost for the same procedure. Why so much? Well, a hospital's not going to simply operate at a loss when treating patients who can't afford to pay so it raises its rates for the rest of us. That's right. 
our socialized medicine is paid for by future hospital patients. It's a kind of lottery system we've set up. Don't have to go for an emergency appendectomy, unexpected severe infection, or any of the thousands of things that can send us to the hospital? You won the lottery. You don't have to pay for our socialized medicine system. If you do end up in the hospital, you do pay for it. Doesn't make any sense to me. But if you want to argue that this shifts the cost of our socialized medicine system to those who use the system, then at least let's call it for what it is. Okay, so what is the logic of this particular system? As opposed to other so-called universal healthcare systems used elsewhere in the world. In those systems, patients are spared the additional layer of all of the competing health insurance companies. There's only one single public or quasi-public agency that's in charge of financing health care for all patients in the country. In every industrialized country that's adopted this, this has brought about lower overall health care costs. And guess what else? Better results. That's right. The United States has the lowest life expectancy of all industrialized countries. I've been told over and over again that despite the costs, what makes our healthcare system the best is shorter wait times for healthcare. There's a belief that universalizing our healthcare would greatly increase wait times. But a review of wait times for countries with universal healthcare shows that there are several countries with average wait times less than those in the U.S. All right, so what about the cost? On average, we spend about twice the amount on healthcare that every other industrialized country does. Okay, so to recap, we've chosen an odd form of socialized medicine, which those who don't have insurance and are unable to pay for their health care are sent to emergency rooms, where the cost of treatment is several times more than it would be in a private clinic. Hospitals are not reimbursed for this care, so we patients pay for it when we use the hospital in the form of increased bills. Most of this is forwarded to us in the form of increased medical insurance rates. But have I mentioned that all hospitals charge private pay patients more than their regular rates? Then they give insurance companies a, quote, discount. Since the vast majority of hospital fees are paid by insurance companies, this discounted rate is their standard rate. Then who are the only people who pay the inflated rate in their initial bill? Hardworking people who can't afford insurance, like Ted. People who the hospital's collection agencies are lucky enough to find who have equity in their homes that can't be protected. Seriously? This is the model for social medicine that we choose? We want people with serious medical problems to be treated, but this is how we choose to pay for it? With a system that gives us the worst health care in the industrialized world, and which we end up paying twice as much for, on average, compared to other industrialized nations? Getting back to my original question, what's the logic of this system, as opposed to other so-called universal health care systems elsewhere in the world? I don't have a clue. Don't get me wrong. We probably have the smartest doctors, and certainly have the best medical researchers here in America. But could they provide better service? if they were given a better healthcare system 
through which to provide their services? I think the answer is definitely. In this episode, we're looking at the search in the 20th and 21st centuries for a better, more humane society. What George Bush Sr. called a kinder, gentler nation. I don't know that he made a lot of progress along those lines. But America has made substantial progress since the child labor days of the 19th century. Other nations have made even more. Unfortunately, the U.S. gets little credit along these lines when it comes to health care. Every other industrialized nation has instituted universal health care systems that provide far, far better health care for their citizens than we have in the U.S. at far lower cost, and yet, we in the U.S. still have the lowest life expectancy of any industrialized country. The Affordable Health Care Act is certainly much better than the system that preceded it, in which private health insurers denied coverage to people who had pre-existing health conditions, that is, the people who needed health insurance the most. Yet, compared to other national health care models, it's a miserable failure. Twice as expensive, poorer results, and still over 10% of Americans have no insurance. Okay, so we're better than we were, but we've still got a long ways to go to improve our access to quality health care. What about other measures of care we might take for our fellow Americans? Here are a few statistics for you. Norway's homeless population is one-third that of the U.S. We'll get back to homelessness in another episode. The Urban Institute projects that about one in seven Americans will be living in poverty in 2021, and that one in six children in the U.S. lived in food-insecure households in 2017. Let's look at income disparity. From the year 2000 to 2018, our nation's economy had grown by an average of over 2% per year. Yet according to the Pew Research Center, during the same period of time, growth in households was only 0.3%. According to the Economic Policy Institute, in our era of tax cuts for the super wealthy, the top 1% saw their incomes rise by over 160% over the last 20 years. And for the top 0.1%, this figure is almost 350%. The top 1% of American earners have nearly doubled their share of the national income over the past five decades. Recent studies show that the top 1% of Americans own more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. So, Serious income inequality, no universal health care, a massive homeless population with an insufficient social safety net to care for them, amazingly high poverty rates for a developed country, and one in six children hungry at least periodically in our country? Does it have to be this way? To answer this, let's look again at our Nordic neighbors, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Iceland. First, let's clarify one thing. The Nordic countries are not socialist, as many Americans would believe. They're capitalist. They're just capitalist countries who've taken Adam Smith's injunctions in the theory of moral sentiments seriously and have provided an effective social safety net for their children. In the Nordic countries, income inequality is among the lowest in the developed world. After taxes, 
a single worker in the bottom 20% earns, on average, quarter of those in the top 20%. This income disparity is far lower than the income disparity in the U.S. The gender pay gap in these countries is also the smallest in the world. Everyone gets free health care. Great effort is made for even those in the lowest socioeconomic status, that is, SES, to get good quality education. Imagine the talent that's lost when low SES children go to substandard schools. The Norse pay for very high quality education, and almost everyone finishes high school. The Nordic philosophy is that if everyone gets the best possible education, then no human potential is wasted. And their commitment to quality education doesn't stop at high school. Everyone is guaranteed a free college education if they want one. Young Norse graduate from college without crushing student debt. In addition, everyone is assured of affordable housing in Nordic countries. A hundred years ago, Nordic countries were among Europe's poorest countries. In 1960, Norway had a GDP similar to Bangladesh or Nigeria. Now Nordic workers are among the best paid in the world. Medium incomes in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark are all higher than the median income in the U.S. Yet at the same time, they enjoy a much better work-life balance than the United States. In Sweden, only 1% of the people work more than 50 hours a week, and very few people have to work two jobs just to get by. In some surveys, Norway and Denmark outrank the U.S. in worker productivity. People there are entitled to take six months off to start their own business and are granted unpaid sabbatical. As we've discussed, a strong social safety net takes care of those who, in America, would fall through the cracks. As the Norse like to put it, the Nordic model provides broad universal services from childhood through retirement. Few people struggle with unemployment. Switzerland, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland all have unemployment rates lower than the United States. Finally, in happiness surveys, people from Nordic countries almost always rank among the top. I've mentioned Bhutan before. The scale that America uses more than any other to evaluate our relative success, or lack thereof as a nation, is the gross domestic product. This is an economic measure of the total value of all goods and services produced in the U.S. within a specific time. Bhutan has developed a different scale with which to measure success or failure in their country, one they feel is more in keeping with their country's values, the now famous Gross National Happiness Index. This tool measures progress in nine different areas, psychological well-being, health, time use, education, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, and living standards. The questionnaire used to measure gross national happiness is not a brief survey that people fill out. It takes several hours, and the Bhutanese are given a day off every year for them to fill out and complete the form. They take this very seriously. I don't know how successful they are. According to another measure of all countries' happiness standings, Bhutan rates 95th somewhere in the middle of the pack. But they are not a rich country, and who knows where they would have been if they had not given happiness such an emphasis. 
According to the World Population Review, the U.S. ranked as the 18th happiest country in the world in 2021. Not bad, but again, well below Finland, Denmark, Switzerland, Iceland, and Norway, who came in one through five in that order. My purpose here is not to compare the U.S. to other developed nations and say, see how much better they are at this happiness and compassion thing than the U.S.? That's not my point. In this episode, I wanted to take a little time to review the progress that's been made over the last century or so in caring for societies less fortunate and look at where we might be headed in this area. It's always been the case that a kingdom or a country's laws have been made by those who are among the wealthy and powerful class. For them, the poor, unemployed, disabled, and otherwise disenfranchised are not their in-groups. As I've mentioned before, societal groups can be complicated with regard to where groups stand vis-a-vis one another. Groups can have characteristics of both in-groups and out-groups, and out-groups can be slightly antagonistic toward one another, or they can be very antagonistic toward one another. The poor typically occupied a position of both in-group and out-group with regard to the governing class. They were an in-group as they were part of the same society yet they were outgroups, and that they belonged to a completely different class. They might be seen as unproductive and a drag on the country's resources. Still, as long as the poor didn't pose a serious threat to the governing class's hold on power, they were seen as only a minor outgroup, one that might bring up minor animosities in the mind of the governing class, not major animosities. It's a fairly widespread claim that genetics has assured a wide array of genotypes that assures that there are people temperamentally predisposed for all the various vocations that are necessary for the proper functioning of a healthy society. Business types whose desire to get ahead and succeed assures a strong economy. Academic types who teach and provide research that moves society's knowledge forward. Religious types who end up as the country's priests and ministers, caregivers, who not only end up as the country's nurses and doctors, but end up caregiving in different ways, and so on. We saw how, even in the Middle Ages, society's caregivers often ended up in monasteries and convents, caring for the homeless and the poor. Life could be very tough if you were poor in the Middle Ages, but there were those who did care about the poor, such as the Franciscans. This provided some relief from the harshness of medieval life on its poorest citizens. Then came the Industrial Revolution, and with it, the opportunity for a newly minted industrial class to become incredibly rich. Now things were done on a mass scale, which hadn't occurred in the Middle Ages, when manufacturing was done mostly in the home or on a small scale. Whenever you have new technologies that change society, it takes some time usually a few generations, before society adopts new systems in order to deal with them. This was the case in the Industrial Revolution. The new industrialist class wasn't as constrained by traditional religious mores as medieval employers. The second axis had attempted to replace the morality of religion with a new, secular morality, but it appears that many of the new industrialists hadn't read their Kant and had yet to adopt his categorical imperative. Remember the categorical imperative? Act only in accordance with that maxim that you wish to become a universal law. 
In America, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing by 1800. By 1889, Jane Addams established the first settlement house, beginning a movement to provide immigrants and other marginalized people in cities access to health care, education, and other services. The Progressive Era soon followed, bringing significant governmental reform, such as the Sherman Antitrust Act, the Fair Trade Commission Act, women's suffrage, and the 16th Amendment, providing for the direct election of senators for the first time. Local assistance programs were reformed to help keep families together, and books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle led to concern about the purity of food Americans ate and resulted in the Pure Food and Drug Act. There were laws regarding child labor, and this was also the beginning of the era of expansion of workers' rights and union protection for workers. In the 1800s, the field of social work didn't exist. The first-degree programs for social workers were offered around the turn of the 20th century. Today, a little over 100 years later, there are an estimated 700,000 social workers in the United States. This is a tremendous growth for a relatively new field, a field dedicated to helping the poor, suffering, the hurt, and the hopeless. Later in the 20th century came the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, minimum wage laws, Medicaid, the kind of socialized medicine that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, then, subsequently, the Affordable Care Act. Add to these Social Security, welfare in all of its various manifestations over the years, and student loans to allow anyone access to college education, and you get a society that's amazingly kinder and gentler than the hard-drinking, low-income world of few workers and women's rights, so that many Americans suffered through the turn of the 20th century. Honestly, this is an incredible amount of progress in 120 years. I've said that the outer wheel of history that brings us progressive social change moves ever so slowly, and there are stops and starts and times when it goes in reverse. Generally speaking, this is very true. But once we made it to the 20th century, the rate of change in societal improvements in the lives of Americans sped up to a degree unparalleled in history. We take these changes for granted now, but life was so different for my grandparents who struggled to provide for their families during the Great Depression, and for the generation or two before them, who may have come west as pioneers in covered wagons, it was unimaginably different. In the 21st century, we take our social programs for granted, even though it is historically very recent because whatever we grew up with seems normal to us. Since we grew up in this world, it's hard to imagine living without the social benefits we now enjoy. But this was very different for our grandparents and every generation that came before them in human history. The converse is also true. Since the world we live in seems normal to us, major change to some new normal is hard for many to imagine. It's hard to imagine living in a world without Medicare, where health care costs are largely covered for us when we reach old age. Yet when it was being debated in the 1960s, 
I once heard a quote attributed to Ronald Reagan, then at the beginning of his political career in California, that if Medicare should pass, that, quote, we will tell our grandchildren what it was like to be free. For him, such a change in the social order was unimaginable. Yet Medicare passed, and now our elderly are never denied necessary medical treatment. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we live in an idyllic society. Our GDP is over $21 trillion. Yet one in seven of us lives in poverty. And we still allow one in six children to live in food insecure households. I'm not saying we don't have a long way to go. But I am saying that we've come a long way in the last hundred years. So it took 10,000 years or so to get from the development of agriculture and the establishment of cities to the provision of some kind of assistance for the poor and disenfranchised by non-governmental religious organizations in the Middle Ages to the explosion of assistance and rights provided to the bottom half of American earners and disenfranchised beginning around the 20th century. We've made far more progress in the past 120 years than we did in all of the preceding 10,000. What's up? Before we answer that question, don't forget that in the 1860s, Americans killed one another in unheard of numbers. Over 600,000 died in the Civil War, and then 20 million died worldwide in World War I, and 75 million in World War II. We've seen not only the greatest advances in social services in recorded history, but also the greatest mass killings of humans in history. Again, in Marvin Gaye's ageless question, what's going on? Once we got to the Industrial Revolution, history shifted into overdrive. Everything began to move faster. We had just finished the second axis and were attempting to incorporate new morality into our worldview. Have you seen all of those paintings of the Last Supper where Jesus and his disciples were reclining on the ground and eating from a table? They were undoubtedly reclining. Yeah, Leonardo got it wrong with this one. He had them on chairs. Why didn't they sit on chairs back then? Answer, if you were a craftsman making chairs back then, there is no sawmill to cut the wood for you. You'd have to cut the wood, form the legs and backing, on your foot-powered lathe, cut and plane everything by hand, and most of it would be done with holes bored exactly to fit the size of the legs because iron nails were too expensive. Then you'd have to do all of that again and again until you made not only the table, but all the chairs that went with it, with all the manpower that went into manufacturing a dining table and a set of chairs pre-industrial revolution. Only the wealthy could afford chairs. If the average person couldn't afford a set of chairs, imagine all the everyday conveniences most people went without before the Industrial Revolution made the comforts of modern life available to the average person for the first time in history. But just as there were vastly more and better consumer goods available following the Industrial Revolution, 
there are more and improved versions of pretty much everything, including armaments. The vast improvements in weaponry meant that war was much deadlier than it had been before. By the time we got to World War II, with the development of Nazi genocidal gas-killing ovens in Auschwitz and other death camps, Allied firebombings of cities, and ultimately nuclear weapons, war became exponentially more deadly. War is the most notorious of human historical trends over the last 200 years, but it's far from being the only one. Economics is another. It was, of course, the first and major beneficiary of the Industrial Revolution. During what I've termed England and the North American colonies pre-capitalist period, most manufacturing was done in cottage industries, with each craftsman not typically employing more than a few employees. The change between this kind of economy and the industrial economies of the Industrial Revolution and of America's Gilded Age caused a change in the daily life and cultures of Europeans and Americans on a scale not seen since the initial adoption of agriculture some 10,000 years ago. Following industrialization, numerous historical drivers have taken America in the direction of being more compassionate. Though we live in a very complex time, we're also experiencing contrary historical drivers, as school shootings and the recent capital insurrection attest. At any rate, America has seen an amazing increase in societal change to help those who struggle at the lower end of the economic spectrum during this period, though it's less than almost any other industrialized country. Why is that? Here's my take. I'm not sure I'm right on this, but this makes sense to me. For 1,500 years, since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Europe was caught in its internal battles, one kingdom against another. During this epoch, the struggle to maintain the balance of power was always a prime historical driver. When one country or kingdom got too powerful, other countries or kingdoms would form to prevent the powerful country or kingdom from taking over. This dynamic played itself out over and over again until the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, the brutal efficacy of modern bombs and armaments had so completely decimated all of the combatants in Europe that they had had enough. It's true that the U.S. gets credit for the Marshall Plan, but the plan worked. The European countries began to work together and formed the first European common market, and then the European Union, or EU. And 15 centuries of warring with each other was over. Until the formation of the European common market in 1957, countries had always had to worry about invasion and war from their neighboring European countries. Since then, they've been far more secure in the knowledge that their erstwhile antagonists would no longer attempt to attack them. However, this wasn't the case with the U.S. Unlike our European allies who organized themselves into a unified monetary union with their traditional foes, we became locked in a cold war with the Soviet Union, each building ever more nuclear bombs, planting them atop increasingly sophisticated ICBMs buried in hardened missile silos, submerging them in increasingly expensive nuclear submarines, and adding them as payloads in increasingly expensive bombers. 
It now costs $2 billion to build a modern B-2 bomber. During all this time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in each other's nuclear sites. So unlike our allies in Europe, who found the benefits of cooperating with our traditional enemies, we lived under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation, at least until the fall of the Soviet Union. We were in a state of constant fear, or at least anxiety, about the outcome of our Cold War with the USSR. Of course, we know it now, but nobody knew it back before communism's fall. What has all this taught us? The countries that are in fear of external aggression are far more likely to focus on their military rather than the social well-being of their citizens. As far as I know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has never been applied on a mass scale. Yet people are people, and human nature is human nature. It was the U.S. that was gripped in the ever-escalating ultimate high-stakes game of nuclear Cold War with the Soviet Union. So while all of the advanced industrialized European countries were concerned with providing medical care and safety nets for their most vulnerable, America was concerned about building more aircraft carriers and more nuclear submarines. As my college economics professor told us, every country needs to make a decision between guns and butter. Safety and security are Maslow's second most basic needs. Perhaps it was just basic psychology not to be as concerned about someone else's needs when you're conducting duck and cover drills for your children, building nuclear bomb shelters in your backyard, or worrying about nuclear Armageddon. New generations of Americans who've grown up in a world not feeling threatened by nuclear annihilation and are much more concerned with providing health care and Nordic-style social reforms seem to argue that this is the case. Okay, so the Soviet Union fell in 1991. Why haven't we made more changes since then? That's the subject of another episode. You'll have to check back later. All right. Where does that put us now? Americans have always been proud of being able to sustain the wealthiest middle class of any nation. But that's no longer the case. The typical middle-class family in 2013 earned pretty much the same as it did in 1988. If you want to live in a country with a wealthier, more successful middle class, you could simply emigrate to Canada. The after-tax income of middle-class Canadians, which was substantially behind middle-class Americans, as recently as 2000, now appears to be ahead of America. The story is worse for those in the bottom fifth of the U.S. population. 35 years ago, being in the bottom quintile of the American economic spectrum still allowed you to have a standard of living that was above those at the bottom of other developed countries. Now, however, poor Americans earn significantly less than their contemporaries in Canada, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And when you consider the far stronger social safety net that the poor have in these countries, the plight of poor Americans is far worse than in other developed countries. This is a massive shift from 1980 when Reagan entered the White House. The best we as Americans can really say now is that we have the wealthiest class of super rich. So if we should decide to get back on the track of positive social change, where can we expect to go? That's what the Nordic countries, 
who haven't been locked in a Cold War for much of the post-World War II, 20th, and 21st centuries have shown us. It's good to have an example of what happens when you make the happiness of our fellow citizens a top priority. In the U.S. for so long, the enemy was communism. And in the minds of far too many Americans, socialism was associated with communism, and therefore verboten to even think about. This has meant that systems like the Nordic governments would have been off-limits for U.S. baby boomers fighting the Cold War. As we've noted, these aren't socialist countries, but they've seemed like it to a generation of anti-communist-minded Americans. Yet now we have a new generation that didn't know the Cold War, didn't practice ducking and covering under their desks in grade school to prepare for the coming nuclear annihilation, and doesn't fear anything that vaguely resembles socialism. They find results like costs paid by our first TED under the American socialized medicine system to be odd and still wonder why we can't find something better than the Affordable Care Act. Your reading this week is The Nordic Theory of Everything in Search of a Better Life by Anu Partinen. To what degree have the Norse charted a way for America to navigate the 21st century? I don't know. Read this book and tell me. This book is a must-read. Enjoy. See you next week.